Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in order uh, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Loving Father, we turn our time this morning over to you. You know how much we as believers often struggle to understand how we put into practice the promises that you've given to us how we lay hold of the sanctification that, that we know is your work. And Father, there's, uh, there's a lot of confusion on that issue, and we pray that as we examine this, this amazing passage this morning, that you'll, you will help us to understand clearly what the walk of the Spirit looks like and how we, in fact, put to death the deeds of the flesh and live in a manner that is worthy of our calling and pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Before I get started, I just wanted to mention that little hymn we just did, 206 in the Red Book. That's worth taking some time and looking at. That's like a a mini pneumatology right there, Theology of the Spirit in six verses. A lot of good stuff right there. They wrote... They wrote amazing hymns back in the 18th, 19th century. How did you, how, how is it that you get from uh, where you are now to where you should be as a Christian? How do you put into practice the multitude of commands that you find in the New Testament that are applied to us as believers? Do you just let go and let God? Or do you... Focus all of your energy and effort 
on figuring out what it is that God requires of you as a believer and then go and do it. I want to get a little more specific. Just paint a little scenario for you that some of you even here uh, today may be in the midst of. Let's say that someone you really care deeply about has wronged you grievously, has sinned against you. And you're struggling with anger, with resentment, with a sense of betrayal. And you know that God commands you as his child to forgive. You have no question about that. So you you set yourself to forgive. And you try with all your might to put aside the anger and resentment. And no matter how hard you try, every time you think of that person or every time you're in that person's presence, you feel those same things. Anger, resentment, fear, betrayal. You feel stuck. Well, beloved, if you're stuck in unforgiveness or in any other of the sins that God identifies as the deeds of the flesh... God has good news for you this morning. Through Paul, God tells us in this passage some very, very important things about how to put to death the deeds of the body and to walk in a manner that's pleasing to God. Now, I want to first put this slide up to talk about where we went last week before we talk about where we're going this week because verses 1 through 13 is one passage and we split it up into two. Last week, we saw Paul's declaration in verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. We also talked about the fact that at the end of chapter 7, he kind of recapped the conflict or struggle between the law of sin and the in the flesh and the law of God and the inner man, and he made it pretty clear that we still have a con- we still have a condemnable connection with sin in our mortal bodies. But here in chapter eight, at the beginning, he said that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the source of our freedom is tied to the Holy Spirit. And then we saw. In verses 5 to 7, or in, at the end of, uh, sorry, verse 3 and 4, that Christ is the one who fulfills in us the requirement of the law. He does what the law could not do because of the weakness of the flesh. And he fulfills the requirement of the law in us who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Then in verses 5 to 7, he pointed out the priority of the mindset of that on which we we put our minds and he said that the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace you either have your mind focused on one of those or on the other one of them is in keeping with the character of god and the other violates the character of god one moves us toward death and the other moves us toward life and by the way that applies even for a believer whose eternal destiny is secured. If you're walking with your mind set on the flesh, you're actually still moving toward death. In verse 7, he said the mind set on the flesh is 
hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Now, in chapter... Uh, before, before I go further, I want to also re, uh, remember what we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 about this whole mindset thing. How do we come to know and understand the mind of God? When Paul said in that passage in 1 Corinthians 2 that only the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. And the Spirit draws us as believers into that incomparable knowledge of God. How does he do that? Well, Paul said he takes spiritual thoughts and he combines them with spiritual words. And that means that these words are spiritual in nature. And and he tells us that the only way we comprehend and understand that which God has made known about himself in his word is by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. They're spiritually discerned. So we're very dependent on the Spirit. Now, i kind of touched on this last time, but I want to drive this home a little bit before we proceed. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, right? Through the prophets, through the apostles, and through Christ. Should we not expect that he will lead those whom he indwells in a way that is always and perfectly in keeping with that which he wrote? Should we not indeed expect that he will always lead us in a way that drives us back to that which he wrote and produces in us greater reverence for it and an understanding of the sufficiency of what God has revealed to us? I mention that because I think one of the things that messes up our theology of the Holy Spirit is when we divide the work of the Holy Spirit from the Word of God in the life of the believer. I don't think you can do that and get away with it. In fact, I think when people do that, They end up with all kinds of bizarre and mystical and incorrect theology about the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit works. There's a reason for all that the Bible says about the connection of the Spirit with the Word. Read John 14, read John 16. You can't divide the two. That doesn't limit the Spirit. It says that the work of the Spirit is tied to the Word in the life of the believer. Okay, enough on that. Just didn't think I could... Could have let that pass. This morning, chapter 8, verses 8 through 11, Paul's going to show us that there are only two realms, two realms of existence, in the flesh and in the spirit. And he's going to declare in verse 8 that those who are in the flesh absolutely cannot please God. Then on the positive side, he's going to declare that we who have the Spirit within us, are in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And then he'll explain in verses 10 and 11 that it is that indwelling Holy Spirit who makes us alive. Finally, verses 12 and 13, he'll take all that he's said and he brings it right down to to practice, to the real nuts and bolts of life. And he says we are obligated because of of the... indwelling spirit, we are obligated to walk, to live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. First, verses 8 through 11, two realms. In verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? (laughs) Now, he's not talking here, I believe, about... um, 
how a man thinks or behaves. He's been talking about that when he talked about walking according to the Spirit versus according to flesh. What he's talking about here is, is who a man is. He's talking about realms of existence. If a man in the land, in verse 7, if the man who is walking according to the flesh is unable to do the things that are in keeping with God's character, what about the man who, no, who has no relationship with the Holy Spirit at all? And that's what he's saying in verse 8. If you're in the flesh rather than in the Spirit, you have no chance of pleasing God. You can do nothing that pleases God. We know that he means uh, unbelievers when he says in the flesh because in verse 9, he says, uh, essentially, if, you're, if, if the Spirit's not in you and you're not in the Spirit, then you don't belong to Christ. So that's, that's an unbeliever. Now what he's saying, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, it's actually radically at odds with the world's way of thinking. It was then and it is now. Think about the Jews who were always kind of in Paul's, in Paul's, uh, bullseye, right? As he's, as he's writing. They believed that they were the heirs of the covenants. That they had the priesthood. They had the sacrifices. They had the tabernacle and the temple. They had all the things that God had given. He said, you only have I chosen out of all the peoples of the earth. Amos 3.2. They forgot the second half of that. Therefore, I will punish all your iniquities. But they thought they were special. And by virtue of the fact that they were Jews, that meant they were pleasing to God, at least at some very important level. Yeah, they had to keep the law, but they learned how to keep the law from their youth up. So they thought they were in good. Well, Paul doesn't equivocate here at all. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, he says, if you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. You and I all know people who are not believers who act better than some of the believers that we know, right? Paul says God is not impressed because without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you cannot please God, and that's where he's going to be moving here. There's only one God. And no man can please him unless he's in Christ and Christ is in him. That's why Peter says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. If you're here today and you're counting on something that you can muster up within yourself to make you acceptable to God, if you think that you can be pleasing to God by just deciding to do so, God says, forget it. Because unless you are in the Spirit rather than in the flesh, there's no chance that you will please God. doesn't matter how good your actions look to other people or to you. It won't happen. In verse 9, Paul moves from third person, those who are in the flesh, to second person, you. And he's talking to his his audience, the saints in Rome, believers. And he says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now the words, if indeed, from the original Greek, could be translated since. 
In fact, the exact same construction in Romans 3, verse 30, if you back up to there real quick, it says, verse 29 and 30, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. The point is, when he says, if indeed the Spirit dwells in you, what he's saying is, the Spirit dwells in you, those to whom he is speaking. This, these are words of affirmation. He's saying, you believers, you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. And that means of necessity that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And to drive home that that inviolable connection between the presence of the Spirit in you and your status as being in the Spirit rather than in the flesh, he drives home the point at the end of verse 9. He returns to the third person speaking of those who do not belong to Christ, and he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You can't please him, and you don't belong to him. So, just to recap, if you have the Spirit, you belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. It's pretty straightforward. I want to ask a couple of very, fairly elementary questions. Many of you will say this is old hat, but I think they're worth asking. First, when does the Holy Spirit come to indwell the believer? Now, before we read the passage, I want to mention... This was a real important question to me when I was a baby believer. Within the first several months after I got saved, some very dear friends, people I really love, I love them to this day, and I know I'll see them in heaven. They took me into their house and they, they took me aside and they laid hands on me. They knew I had, I had trusted Christ as my Savior, but they laid hands on me and they prayed for me to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they expected certain manifestations of that, right? And for about 10 or 15 minutes, they prayed... And I prayed, and nothing happened. And I, I finally said to them, you know, guys, I love you, but if, if God doesn't do this, it's not going to get done. And I said, if he wants me to have what you're describing, he's going to have to do it. Well, they were kind, they were gracious, and I walked out of that, and, and the first thing I did is I went home, I grabbed my Bible, and I started looking at all this. And this passage revolutionized my understanding of this question. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 committed this to memory when I was one, less than one year old in the Lord. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's a lot of words in a couple of verses, isn't it? but it's actually very straightforward. There are three steps. You heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You believed that message, and when you did, God sealed you with his Holy Spirit. And he describes the Holy Spirit there as the Holy Spirit of promise, and that points us right back to the Old Testament. (laughs) We looked at last week, Ezekiel 36, the new covenant in the Old Testament. God said to his people, I will put a new spirit within you. And then he explained who that spirit would be. He said, I'll put my spirit within you. 
So when does the believer become indwelled by the Holy Spirit? When he hears and believes the truth. Okay? So that's when it starts. How long does it last? Paul answers that too. He says, okay, so you heard, you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then he says, that Spirit is given to you as a pledge of our inheritance. With a view to, that means until, the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So, it happens, we're, we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And if you wonder what that day is, I'll just do a, I'll cheat just a little bit and point you to chapter 8 and verses 18 to 25, which we'll be getting to soon. Because Paul's going to tell us that that day, when God redeems his own possession, is the day we're glorified and we stand in his presence. You know what his possession is? It's you. It's us. And I should say us, because it's together, it's us. You know what our inheritance is? It's him. So let's recap that. If you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, you don't belong to Christ. And every single person who has heard and believed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been indwelled, sealed by the Holy Spirit from that moment until that person stands glorified, spotless, blameless in the presence of God, having put sin away from him, delivered from the penalty, the power, and the presence. Of sin. That's how long. It's a done deal if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. There's one other really key question that I want to talk about here because I'd be criminally negligent if I didn't point out that verses 9 through 11 present one of the clearest statements about the Trinity that you're going to find anywhere in the New Testament. Who is this spirit that dwells, that comes to dwell in every believer? Verse 9 says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then it says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10 says, if Christ is in you. And verse 11 says, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if he dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead, second time, uh, is the one who will give life to your mortal bodies. And the one who does that is his spirit who indwells you. Okay, so you got the indwelling thing over and over. And who, who is doing the indwelling? Well, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, Christ, and the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead. The gang's all here. Right? And I don't mean to trivialize that at all. One thing that's crystal clear is he's not talking about some impersonal force, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would have it. All three persons of the Trinity are in these verses, and each of them is said to indwell the believer. How does that work? I, I'm convinced this is the realization, the realization of Emmanuel, God with us. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit brings us into relationship and union with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is exactly what Jesus was talking about the night he was betrayed, the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he 
spoke to his father in prayer in John 17. And he said, John 17, verses 20 to 23, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, in other words, my disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. How is it that God the Father and God the Son take up residence within us? It's in the person of God, the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about getting your hands around that. I promise you won't. Be satisfied to be in awe that God should make such a thing true of you. In verses 10 and 11, Paul reminds us again as believers of what is already true of us and of how that reality impacts our lives both in eternity and here and now. He says in verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Again, he's in the second person. He's still talking to the saints, whom he already affirmed in verse 9, to be in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And what he says here harkens back to chapter 7, to that conflict between the law of sin in the the body and the law of God in the inner man. Uh, I think if you compare 7.24 with 8.10, you see something pretty interesting. He says, 7.24... Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then in chapter 8, verse 10, he says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And then in verse 11, he talks about resurrection power. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So our inner man is alive and God's righteousness is at work in us because we are indwelled by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and... The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the very one who indwells us. So it's about resurrection power, resurrection life. And I think what he's doing in verse 11, he's making a point about the present based on something that's going to happen in the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57. You guys know the resurrection passage. You hear it a lot at funerals. It's amazing stuff. It's the glorious promise of what lies ahead. And I don't have a slide. I just want to read this to you. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, that certainly harkens back to Romans. And then he says, verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound a lot like Romans 7.25? Who shall set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God (laughs) through Jesus Christ our Lord. The ultimate realization of our victory over death will be our resurrection. But Paul's pointing to that future event in order to draw our attention to the fact that we can even now lay hold of real freedom from the law of sin and death that is in our bodies. We can lay hold of real freedom from the controlling influence of sin. And the way we lay hold of that freedom is through the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that happens by the same resurrection power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. In Ephesians 1, I mentioned that before, Paul prayed three things for the saints in Ephesus. And the third thing, he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they may know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And then he said, that power is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When? When he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, both in this age and in the age to come. It is the resurrection life and the resurrection power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who makes us spiritually alive even while our physical bodies remain in the realm of death. That's only a temporary condition. Back in Romans 8, 2, Paul said, said, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He presented that in that verse as an already accomplished fact. You're already free. Now in verse 11, he's pointing to the future freedom from our corrupt bodies by the resurrection power of the Spirit in order to make the point that that same Holy Spirit who will one day give life to these dying, corrupt bodies has already, even now, made us spiritually alive. And he's freed us from the control of sin. His point is about the here and now, and that becomes very clear in the last two verses of this passage when he says we are under obligation to live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Verse 12 and 13, So then, brethren, the so then means in light of all that he's just said. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, I'm going to go over to another Pauline passage, Galatians 5, because there's a lot of the same ideas here. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. In the verse we just looked at, he said, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then he says in verse 18, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It's not about law-keeping. It's about spirit-walking. And then in verses 19, this is Galatians 5, 19 to 21, he goes on and he lists the deeds of the flesh. Now, I'm not going to go through the list. They're all recognizable to you because uh, they're very familiar to us in practice. And then after listing the, the deeds of the flesh, he lists the fruit of the Spirit. And you know these love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says against such things there is no law. In verse 24, Galatians 5, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, again familiar wording, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The flow of thought is the same. It's the Spirit who makes us alive. So let us walk in His power. The power that he's made to dwell within us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that put Jesus above every other authority in heaven and on earth. Let's walk according to his power. It's amazing to me how how strongly tied these two passages are. The highest objective and the purest motive of every believer is to seek to glorify God. But many believers struggle to understand how to go about doing that. We're habituated to see life in terms of law-keeping, in terms of rules. But Paul's already made clear that until we die to the law, we cannot be joined to Christ. We must learn that freedom from the law of sin and death only comes when we lay hold of the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And you all say, it sounds wonderful. How do I do it? Do I work hard at producing the fruit of the Spirit? Is that how I do it? Well, let's see for a moment. John chapter 15. What does Jesus say about that, working hard to produce fruit? He says, John fifteen four. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him He's the one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, if you say, okay, the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So, what I need to do then is I need to be more loving. I need to be more joyful. I need to be more peaceful, more patient, kinder than I've been, 
better than I've been, more faithful than I've been, gentler than I've been. And in order to do all that, I definitely have to have some self-control. Beloved, Paul didn't give us that list so that we'd have a new set of rules to replace the old one. That's why he says in Romans 8.13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's why in Galatians 5.16 he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. What is it that made us dead to sin and alive to God in the first place? Back in Romans chapter 6. Was it the strength of our commitment to die to sin and to live to God? Absolutely not. It was our union with Christ in the likeness of His death and resurrection. That's how we get newness of life. That's how we are freed from sin and alive to God. And there's no other way. It is our union with Christ through faith in Him that gives us victory. And the victory is His, ultimately. It's not ours. The way we entered into that victory over death and entered into life in the first place is the same way we now gain victory over death and enter into life practically, day by day, moment by moment. We don't win that victory ourselves. It was already won by Christ. So the way we enter into that practical victory is by relying on and abiding in the victor. Now that may seem elusive, but it's not supposed to be. You don't put the, to death the deeds of the flesh by setting your mind on the, on the flesh. That won't ever work. If I say, okay, God, I'm going to spend some time and I'm going to really take a hard look at my sin. I'm going to get to know it so well that I'll find its weak spot and then I can kill it. You don't have the power to do that. Only God does. And on the positive side, if I say, okay, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, I'm going to set my mind on those things. I'm going to study them. I'm going to get to know them really well, that fruit. I'm going to know that fruit. I'm going to know it so well that I'll just be able to do it. And God says, you don't have the power to do that. Only I have the power to do that in you. By the way, there is something that you're called to do with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And what is it? To love the Lord your God. Matthew 22, 35, 40. There's just this one thing that you're supposed to do with all your heart and soul and mind. And Deuteronomy 6 adds strength, all your strength. Jesus called it the greatest and foremost commandment. Love the Lord your God. And then he said there's a second one that proceeds. It's like that one. It proceeds from that one. And that is love your neighbor as yourself. You want to live a godly life? Then you have to walk by the Spirit. How do you do that? First, you pour your energy into knowing who God is and what God has done in order that you may come to love him more. And then you walk. You live and act always in light of that blessed knowledge of God. I'm going to go back to the scenario I mentioned at the beginning. Someone has wronged you 
someone you love, someone who matters to you a lot, and you, you feel angry and betrayed, and the last thing that you seem to be able to do is to muster up genuine forgiveness. It eludes you. You try. You know you're supposed to do it. But you're not getting there. I'm going to take you to one last passage. To me, one of the most practical things that you'll ever see. I've said before, I think Ephesians 4 and 5 tells me everything I need to know to have a successful marriage. Not that there aren't other good things to know, but those those two chapters just rock solid with good information. And it also impacts every other relationship. Ephesians 4, look at this. Verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then look at the connection with the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He didn't say don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God because if you, if you do, you prove you're not a Christian. He's talking about the motivation of knowing what God has done for you through the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You're signed, sealed, and delivered for His gates, for His kingdom because of that Spirit. And he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Wouldn't that be nice? And verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I love this passage. I find it both exceedingly practical and exceedingly pertinent to the passage that we're looking at in Romans 8. It puts our relationship with the indwelling Holy Spirit right in the thick middle of the issue of how we're supposed to actually live. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The motivation, the impetus, and the power behind all of God's commands regarding how we are to live and act flows from that which we know to be true of Him and of us because of Him. If you know that you who deserved only hell have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption, why would you want to do the things that grieve Him? Why would you not instead want to do everything that pleases Him? Even the very actions that God commands are not about us. They're about Christ. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. (laughs) Guys, if you take a, a good hard look at what you have been forgiven in Christ, you won't be able to withhold forgiveness from another human being. You won't even want to. The reason we're unforgiving is because our eyes are in the wrong place. And it's the same reason we're unloving In Ephesians 5, the next two verses, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, again, the motivation comes from who he is and what he's done for us. We're his children. And he says, Walk in love 
And what's the template for that? What's the standard for that? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What cripples us from loving and forgiving others as God's character demands is because we have our eyes and our minds in the wrong place. We set our minds on the wrongs done to us by others or on our pathetic concept of what we deserve (laughs) or on the wretchedness of our own sin or even on the hopelessness of our situation as we see it. When in reality, the only place our eyes should ever be is on the author and perfecter of faith, Jesus Christ. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Walking by the spirit's not so much about what you do, it's about whom you see. It's about beholding God and knowing what he's done for you in Christ and then simply walking in the brilliant light of that wonderful knowledge. So how is it then that we get better at walking by the Spirit? We get better at knowing God. And that doesn't mean that you stop doing the things that you know very well are in keeping with the character of God. (laughs) You don't sit like a bump on a log and wait for God to pick you up and make you do stuff. There's a reason it's called the Christian walk and not the Christian sit. It isn't let go and let God. It's more like press on and trust God. Get as familiar as you can every single day with who your Savior is and what He has given to you that you did not deserve. And then with your eyes firmly fixed on Him, put both feet into living and acting in keeping with His character, trusting always in Him and Him alone to produce the change in you that He desires and to produce the fruit through you that He desires. That is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And beloved, that is your birthright as a child of God. Loving Father, thank you Thank you for the power of the words that you've set before us in this passage. Thank you for the the fact that when you tell us about our obligation to live according to the Spirit, you don't tell us that in a vacuum. You don't put that on us, Father. You tell us that the only way that we can live in keeping with the Spirit, in keeping with your character, is because He is in us. And He is our power. And His resurrection power, His resurrection life is that which makes us able and moves us to live lives that are worthy of our calling and that are pleasing in Your sight. Father, teach us to walk with our eyes on Christ. We ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen.